Hey everybody, it's Tim. Welcome to another short mini-series of The Wanderer, what I have affectionately referred to as the B-sides to the main podcast. Uh, We did a small series before on U2 and theology with Dr. Timothy Gombas, and now we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. For those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while know that I'm constantly picking at and trying to find my way into the mystery and understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing with our time here, how we're supposed to posture ourselves, etc., etc. For me, and I've said this before, one of the ways in which I engaged at church was as a worship leader and as a worshiper. Music has always been very important to me. Art has always been very important to me. However, one of the reasons I stopped attending church for a long period of time was because of the performative nature of all of it, the emotional manipulation that the music and the performance would often conjure up in the congregation, the way songs build and break, the way we know that they will evoke an emotional response, the dopamine levels in your brain, all of it. I got so caught up in the system of it, I just couldn't worship. But as I came out the other side of it, The question changed. I wanted to understand why we worship. What is worship? I miss it, and I know the reasons why I miss it, but I don't necessarily know the reasons why we do it. What is it that God's actually looking for? What's he asking for? So we find ourselves kind of in the belly of this deconstruction conversation. But what deconstruction really is for a lot of us is a group of us looking to truly understand reaching out into mystery. If we take that metaphor that Dr. Gombas gave us a while ago about the national parks, right? He described Christianity as often people just staying inside the gift shop and looking at the brochures and the little pictures and the trinkets, all the while not realizing that the parks themselves were outside the door. We weren't experiencing the full breadth and beauty of what they are. We were settling for a consumeristic, small, little representation. If we follow that metaphor all the way through, this is me wandering in the park. And remember, not all who wander are lost. This series is going to look at worship, but really, part of my quote-unquote deconstruction has been trying to understand all of it. Prayer, teaching, communion, all of it. So, this is what this series is going to be, is looking at worship. Worship as justice, worship as resistance, worship as reorientation. And each episode, I'm going to look at a particular song, a hymn, something that was rooted in activity and justice and reorientation itself. The episodes will be pretty short. Other than this one where I try to give a little bit of background as to what this is rooted in. We'll look at the history of the hymns, who wrote them and why, what they were appealing to in the times, and where we can maybe find ourselves in them today. And at the end of every episode, I'm going to try to re-record the hymns or the songs in my office. Simple little lo-fi recordings so that maybe we can't listen to the songs immediately after talking about them with fresh ears i want to invite you along on this journey i'm learning as i go 
This is the long road. A lot of what we found in worship is that it is emotional manipulation, as I said, performance, showmanship, look at me, look at us. And what we find often is that it's just like Jesus said, I am my own reward. I am receiving the reward that I seek. Here, I guess we are, or I am, trying to, I don't know how to phrase it. I guess I'm trying to come back to the heart of worship. That's kind of funny. Thanks, Matt Redman. So here's some brief notes, things that I've collected along the way and getting ready to start this process. Worship is an act of resistance. It's a corporate molding, proclamation, a reorientation. Most worship currently is still molding, but it's molding into this model of a, you know, as Mike has called it, a pep rally for Jesus. So what is worship? And what does the Bible mean by it? A couple definitions of the word are to ascribe worth, to bow. And we do that uh, with time, with energy, with passion and focus. We're doing it all the time, every day, in innumerable ways. Some are obvious, some pedestrian. We're declaring worth. We're declaring allegiance. When I was talking to Mike about this one time, he said, he asked me a question and said, what is the American flag? What purpose does it serve? What does it provoke? Right? We can all close our eyes and picture the flag perfectly and probably imagine and remember many moments throughout our life in which it played a part. We have holidays for it. We sing to it and about it and what it means. It orients us as Americans. It unifies. There's cohesion. Declares worth. We're doing this all the time with signs and symbols and songs. This isn't a religious activity, it's a human activity. It's what we do when we build culture and community. So the first point is taking the human activity, proclivity of this way that we orient ourselves in our daily lives and directing it towards eternity to pledge allegiance, to elevate, to display prominence, and to symbolize. We use a cross. We share a meal like the 4th of July. We have hymns like the Pledge of Allegiance. And we have creeds that we recite. Worship is a way to ascribe worth, to pledge allegiance, while promoting unity amongst a diverse group of people. But what it really is, or what we're advocating for here, is counter-programming. Since we worship all the time, this needs to be something that dismantles cruise control. Rather than bringing what we do out in the world into church, we should be disrupting it. See, we believe something that is greater than the flag, than the almighty dollar, than consumerism, than capitalism, and form, and in function. We only have so many practices available to us, and they happen to all be sensory. Sound, touch smell. A lot of liturgical churches burn incense. The service is a sensory experience. And what we know is that sensory forms our brains in very certain ways. It's a very human activity. Paul talks about this in the patterns of the world. The world wants to take our mechanisms for worship, our worship mechanism, and shape it, usually for the benefit of those in power. We see it in politics, we see it in business, and we see it in art and in music. When it gets commodified, 
and it's built to provoke something in you to require your allegiance. What we're going to be trying to do is putting a flag over enemy-occupied territory. We are counter-programming. First, purpose of singing. The national anthem before the game is a liturgical service. We take off our hats, we stand, we place our hands over our hearts, it orients everyone. Maybe jets fly over, demonstrating power. Incredible artistry in the singer, we have the best singers in the world come out and sing the song and inspire us. Everyone is standing at attention. Our posture demonstrates allegiance. So we look to counter-program. Same mechanisms, not a pep rally or wasted space. It's counter. Teaching, communion, prayer, all of it. Standing, blessing at the end of the service. It's resistance to a public arena. Second, the Psalms. The recitation of God's acts, declaration of his character, promise of allegiance to his to him and his kingdom ways, expression of emotion regarding circumstance and injustice, communal lament, songs of ascent. Mike told me a story about being in Israel and how Israel has a great memorial day and that he was there for this event. And it remembers uh, Israelis fallen in battles and wars. And he said at one particular point, everyone stops and they sing David's lament over Jonathan. And it's this powerful expression of group lament and group grieving. There's a lot in the Bible, topics and orientations that we are given permission to address and sing about. And there is room for improv and growth and new things. But the bottom line is, it isn't about us. It's never about me feeling better or me being emotionally expressive for the sake of being emotionally expressive. Even if there is a me-ness and an I-ness in the words, it's always God-focused. One of the questions that I hear often, and one of the things that I've struggled with myself, is if this God of the scripture is uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of all things, all that jazz, why does he need us to be sitting around singing holy, holy, holy all the time? Why does he need our adulation? What is his ego all about? It's a very childlike question, but then the more that I hear it, the more I'm like, yeah, what in the world? Why? <laughs> if I praise my wife, I am encouraging and acknowledging things about her, not me. I may feel good from lifting her up, that's fine, but that isn't the goal. We are looking to reorient ourselves personally and communally. The only prerequisite to this is the excavation of previous idols. We live in an individualistic culture, and this is part of the counter-programming. And, and this can't be prescriptive. There is no remedy for this reorientation of us. It will look different in different communities with different priorities. Part of the heart of worship is the honesty to face where we are and how we can surrender. And no matter how good your intentions are, we can't force people to counter-program. Responsibility from the stage is intentionally building that environment, encouraging and taking this all seriously. Worship as justice loving your neighbor and your enemy, and building shalom and repairing shalom. The rest is commentary.
we understand the ascribing of worth. We understand that as status, as uh, personality, celebrity. And that makes God out to be kind of a megalomaniac, right? Counterprogramming is not for God. It's for us. If liberation is the goal of salvation, then part of our full humanity is being expressed. It's a very human impulse to share joy and sorrow. Even with sacrifices in the Old Testament, God says, I've got cattle on a thousand hills. It's about our reorientation, not God's. He didn't need the cattle. He didn't need the sacrifices. So there's something very specific in the orientation and posture that we enter in with. He doesn't need our praise, but he knows that we do. If I am somebody pursuing liberation, and I'm part of a community of people pursuing liberation, raising the flag over enemy-occupied territory becomes mandatory for my freedom. Justice and shalom building and repair. Elevating humanity, restoring humanity, ushering in the kingdom that is here and now and is to come. These are songs of reminding Songs of refocusing, songs of repentance, songs of resistance. They're invitations. It's unification around grief and joy. Again, I'm in process on all of this. This little series is going to be you guys coming along with me on that journey. We're going to start digging holes and looking at what's underneath rocks. I love it. I love the mystery. I love the wonder. I love knowing that God is continually revealing himself and that he's continually hoping for us to be restored. I love that recognizing that and loving my neighbor and letting go of hatred and anger, loving my enemy, that those are all ways of me restoring my humanity and yours. So, the first song. I thought the most appropriate place to start, being the season that we're in, was with something we sing at Christmas. And so this is the story of O Holy Night. These are the stories that you can't make up, even if you tried, and I love it. So, O Holy Night, one of the most popular songs we sing at Christmas every year, arguably one of the most beautifully written songs of all time. It's always nerve-wracking watching people get up stage to sing it, knowing that these huge choral pieces that kind of push your voice up to the ceiling are approaching around the corner. I always get a little nervous. But did you know, and maybe some of you did, but that this song, when it made it over to American soil, had quite a life as an anthem of abolitionism. Pretty wild. All right, so the origin story. Around 1843, there was a French poet by the name of, and please forgive me, French listeners, I did take French in high school for two years. That was a while ago. Je t'aime mon petit chou. But a French poet by the name of Placide Capot was commissioned by the local church to write uh, a piece for the renovation of a church. Now, 
he was into the idea, but there was a little caveat or I don't know, a wrinkle. He liked the idea of writing it, but he himself was an atheist. Already kind of a funky origin for a very popular hymn. He wrote a poem called Minuit Charitines, right? That's what I titled the song for this. I like it. And you know what that translates as? Midnight Christians, which is kind of a rad name for a song. He brought it to a guy named Adolf Adam, who wrote the music to it, and the song became a big hit. Much to the chagrin of the church, who was not super stoked uh, about the fact that it was written by two, I don't know, non-Christians or non-believers or whatever, and that it had some fairly justice-oriented lyrics. They tried to put a cap on it, cancel it, but the song kind of had a life of its own. So much so that in about 1855 or so, a little decade later, a pastor in Boston by the name of John Sullivan Dwight found that song and translated it. And he fell in love with it, particularly because of a third verse that we rarely sing. And if everybody remembers their American history, 1855 was not the best time in America. The third verse of this song says this, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave. He is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. So John, Pastor John in Boston, was himself an abolitionist. And he published this song in this little uh, journal that he had called Dwight's Journal of Music. And the song took off like gangbusters. Obviously, it gained a lot of traction, particularly in the North. So it's wild. We've talked about the history of race and slavery in this country and the history of race and slavery within the church and how Christians in the South had written a slave Bible that excluded all scripture that talked about slaves being free or being equal because they wanted slaves to still find Jesus. They still wanted slaves to become Christians, but they wanted them to remain inferior. Maybe one of the darkest points in Christianity. And here you have a song growing in popularity that speaks directly against that. I've often thought of songs or writing songs similarly to having children. A lot of energy and creativity and magic goes into creating them, but then once you release them, they have a life of their own. You hope for the best, you hope that they're received well, you hope that they're loved, but it's largely out of your hands. I don't know if Philippe and Adolf had any kind of inclination as to what the future of the song would be, but they put the effort and the energy into it that it might have a purpose. And while that song, even after the Civil War ended, was largely not sung in Southern churches, and the third verse has been largely left out altogether, 
it's kind of amazing that it existed in the first place. Worship can bring a community together, and it can remind us of the ways of the kingdom, of where there is pain and suffering and the healing and the reconciliation that this world still needs. A weary world rejoices, like the song says. Worship is active, not passive. Worship is a part of our daily lives. These songs should remind us of that, should push us towards that. One of the things that it does in its reorientation is it reminds us that there are people who are still struggling, that slavery still exists in this world today in 2022, and that even here in America, there are sections of huge racial inequality. It is a song of justice. It is a song of resistance. It is a song of liberation. And if salvation is liberation, and it's liberation for all, then this song is a reminder that we are the resistance. Part of the original poem reads as this. The Redeemer has overcome every obstacle. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there is only a slave. Love unites those that iron had chained, who will tell him of our gratitude. It's for all of us that he is born, that he suffers and dies. People stand up, sing of your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, sing of the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas, sing of the Redeemer. stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error Taught us to love one another.
law is love and his gospel is peace chains shall he break for the slave he is our brother and in his name all of Oh